Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. I have uh, Professor Robert Siegel. He's at Stanford uh, in the Microbiology and Immunology Department. Uh, we're going to talk about his, uh, he's a teacher, so he's not doing uh, research so far as I know, but uh, he's a commentator for a lot of news outlets, you know, especially lately on uh, coronavirus. Um, he's been teaching for many years and has quite an extensive knowledge of uh, various viruses that affect humans. So, Robert, thanks for coming. It's my pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, what, what, uh, how long have you been studying viruses and what got you interested in them years ago? Well, I first started teaching about viruses about 40 years ago. And uh, I think what got me interested was uh, I was actually teaching a course about uh, cancer, the biology of cancer. And we talk about some of the major causes of cancer. And uh, we kind of classify those into four groups. And those are basically uh, chemicals, radiation, uh, viruses, and genetic predisposition. So, uh, so right off the bat, viruses became uh, very important, you know, in terms of uh, explaining how cancer works. Yeah, just a quick question about cancer. Which, uh, what viruses have been established to cause what kind of cancers? I've heard of like HPV, but uh, what else? Well, there's only a small number of viruses that have been definitively linked to cancers, but they've been linked to some of the most important cancers. And there are estimates that somewhere between, uh, that makes up somewhere be, uh, upwards of 15 or more percent of the total cancer burden. Uh, the most important ones are HPV, which is associated with uh, human cervical cancer, as well as cancers of the um, uh, genitalia of men and women, so uh, anal cancer, penile cancer, uh, laryngeal cancer, because that's sim- the, the larynx has similar tissue. Uh, another really important one is uh, hepatitis B, which is linked to liver cancer. Uh, hepatitis C is also linked to liver cancer. And then there's several of them that, uh, that are, cause cancers that are, that are less common throughout the world. Uh, so there is uh, uh, a Herpes virus, uh, two herpes viruses that are associated with cancer. Uh, one is Kaposi's sarcoma-associated herpes virus, or KSHV, uh, and that is associated with a number of cancers that occur in, for instance, people infected with HIV. Uh, there's also um, another herpes virus, uh, um, Epstein-Barr virus, that's been associated with several types of cancers, including Burkitt's lymphoma, which is another type of uh, cancers of the immune system, and uh, nasopharyngeal carcinoma. Uh, and uh, there's also some of the other sort of uh, less common cancers. There's a, um, a uh, cancer um, uh, called, called Merkel cell, uh, poly- Merkel cell uh, cancer, and it's caused by a polyomavirus called Merkel cell polyomavirus. Yeah, and I guess there's also a class of viruses that have uh, endogenized into our own DNA that we carry with us forever, right? Yes. So it's been estimated that, uh, that as much of our uh, genome is devoted to sort of cryptic uh, 
retroviruses and other viruses as, uh, as the amount of DNA that's devoted to actual um, protein encoding region. Uh, so these cryptic viruses, they, they don't actually, uh, as far as we know, come out in humans. Uh, so they're sort of pieces or remnants of viruses that got embedded in the genome uh, long ago. So what, what um, I mean, in your more recent years of study, uh, you know, I know, again, you've been teaching for a very long time, 40 years, but, um, you know, as an aside, are you doing active study into various viruses? You know, that's also how you balance your, like, intellectual workload, or, you know, in addition to teaching, which is, you know, is plenty, what, what do you do as well in the, in the field of virology? What do you study? Well, uh, the, the main thing I focus is on is, uh, is teaching in public education. So I, I also work for a number of uh, uh, non-governmental organizations that do uh, um, prevention work. So, for instance, I'm involved with a number of uh, organizations that work in Africa to prevent uh, HIV uh, infection. Uh, I've been involved with a project that uh, actually was looking at uh, the incidence of malaria in Papua New Guinea, uh, I'm currently uh, working with some students on a review of um, the asymptomatic and pre-symptomatic transmission of, uh, of uh, the current coronavirus, uh, and I'm finishing up a chapter on the classification of viruses. So the, the teaching and the education part keep me, uh, keep me quite busy. Very good. Well, I'm sure it's uh, on everyone's mind, you know, the current coronavirus, but um, with previous viruses or, you know, ones that are still here, like HIV that have had a huge impact, what are some of the big learnings that you see society has figured out about that or about Ebola or about measles or about, you know, again, viruses that may have been with us for quite a while now? Well, we, uh, we, we're continuing to see a huge impact from both the viruses that we know and also viruses that are emerging. And that's, that's one of the key points. Uh, We've also, as we've gotten better and better insights into these viruses, uh, we've, we've actually figured out some ways to deal with them. So uh, vaccines are not particularly new, but we've, uh, we've now developed new techniques for developing vaccines. Uh, and some of those have been important, for instance, in the development of a vaccine against Ebola. Um, we also, uh, when I first started teaching, there were essentially no effective drugs or very few effective drugs against viral infections. Uh, and since then, there's been the development of a number of infect effective uh, drugs. Uh, some of the most sort of remarkable uh, treatments have been produced for, uh, for HIV, in which we can basically, we can't, we can't uh, eliminate the virus from people's body, but we can squash it down to a level in which uh, it doesn't cause significant health effects and it's no longer transmissible between individuals. Uh, we also have some really remarkable drugs for hepatitis C that actually are able to uh, eliminate the virus from most people's body. So, uh, so these are examples of sort of uh, great success stories. Uh, I, I think there's a there's a a lesson there, and that lesson is that. Uh, in most cases, the drugs have required uh, learning a lot about the, the particular viral proteins and targeting those viral proteins uh, uh, with specific drugs. And coming to the, uh, you know, the current uh, SARS-CoV-2 virus, you know, I keep hearing, we don't know, we don't know, we don't know. What do you know that we know now after about, let's say, about five months of, of experiencing it? Is there any significant uh, you know, knowledge that's been gained about it and in what regard? So, so I would emphasize the first point that you mentioned is that it's kind of remarkable, um, you know, in some sense, what we 
don't know, but also what we do know. Uh, so there's some very basic things that we don't know that, that are knowable. Uh, and part of the reason we don't know them is because of, there's kind of a, 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 a rush to get answers, and sometimes that actually slows us down quite considerably. Uh, an example of that is that um, right now we're doing a lot of testing, and in some places they are actually following up positive tests with, with uh, calls, daily calls. Uh, and uh, some people turn out to be, you know, they're at risk, but they turn out to be asymptomatic. But for instance, we don't know what percentage of those asymptomatic individuals uh, will become symptomatic. Okay, that's something that's very basic. It's very necessary, but, uh, but there are problems in terms of uh, HIPAA laws, and there's problems in terms of manpower, and there's problems in terms of getting approvals uh, to doing that kind of research. And so there are some very, very basic things about transmission and about uh, what we might call viral dynamics uh, that we, we still don't really know the answer to. Uh, in terms well, of I, have, I have a, a quick question here. What, why is there a problem with manpower? What, it doesn't make sense. You know, if this was a, a world war, it would be all hands on deck. Why has no nation or no group of nations said we're going to put forth X hundred billion dollars and we're going to get volunteers and we're going to study this thing and get answers now? And ethics aside, it's causing trillions and trillions of dollars of consternation and economic damage. Why, why, why would there be not enough manpower, not enough uh, resources? Uh, why indeed? I think you brought me in here to talk about viruses, and I think you've now entered the realm of, uh, of politics. So I think uh, the answer is, is political, and it's not really virological. Uh, there are a lot of answers that are knowable. Uh, and in some cases, the answers uh, are easily knowable. So, for instance, uh, uh, you know, when the, before the very first case arrived in the United States, there was a ship uh, called the Diamond Princess, and there was an outbreak on that ship. And it occurred to me, now I, I believe all the research should be voluntary, but it occurred to me that that was a perfect opportunity to study those individuals every day to offer them tests, uh, to find out, you know, who was actually going to become uh, infected. Now, not, not mandatory, but just, you know, offer them and put, you know, again, put the effort in. Uh, at that point, we would have known what the, the incubation period was. We would have known, you know, what, you know, if there are asymptomatic individuals and what percentage were. That study wasn't done. And to a certain extent, that study still hasn't been done. We are now 12 million people into this epidemic. So, so those things are knowable, but the studies really haven't been done. And I think it's for, you know, for political reasons. Well, what else would you say is knowable and what would be, you know, very difficult to find out? Um, well, I think that um, given our situation, uh, there's, there's a lot that there's, there's more that we can know than, than that we can't know. So, so we talked about what you can't know and why that's significant. Uh, we didn't actually talk about some of the things that, that are known. So one of the things uh, that is kind of remarkable is that uh, is the speed at which some of the molecular biology of this virus has been, uh, has been revealed. So even by the time the first case was announced uh, outside of China, so this was basically the last day of 2019, that's why it ends up being, you know, COVID-19. Uh, even at that point, uh, the cause of the pandemic was known uh, and the, the, the virus had been sequenced. Okay, that's remarkable and unprecedented that at that speed, we would have like uh, determined a, a 
uh, th that information about an agent that had never been seen before. Uh, and enough was known about it that we knew that it was very similar to another agent that had been studied, namely uh, SARS uh, coronavirus. And so those are insights. At this point, uh, the, you know, the genetic makeup of this virus is very well known. We know every single letter that goes into its, uh, into its genome. Uh, the proteins that it encodes are known. They have been, uh, um, basically their, their three-dimensional shapes have been determined. Uh, we have tracked changes in that genome. So, so there's actually quite a bit that we do know. So, Ed, if, okay, so if we know the genome, I guess we would know how, what the mutation rate is. You know, I know there's been, I don't know, probably 15,000 plus sequences, you know, cataloged by GISAID and others. So, you know, has anyone reviewed them to see, uh, you know, how much it mutates, if it mutates, and, you know, what are like, what's the phenotypic result of the mutations? Any studies there? So, so there are, there's some confusion about, uh, about this issue because it turns out that, that viruses uh, actually mutate at a very high rate. And we actually know the mutation rate. And basically, uh, given the mutation rate, probably uh, every cell that, that generates new coronavirus has, uh, has you know, new viruses with mutations. So, so there's the sort of the, the replication mutation rate. Uh, and, but most of those viruses, you know, don't come to, uh, you know, we, we don't see them. They just, they, they essentially don't make it. Uh, now, one thing that's interesting about coronavirus, just as a, an aside, is that most viruses that have uh, RNA as their genetic material, such as coronavirus, aren't able to act. They have a very high mutation rate because they don't have a proofreading function when they copy their genetic information. Uh, but coronaviruses do. So that's something that's kind of unique about coronavirus. Um, okay, so so they're making these mistakes, but we but then we we do see changes in the composition of the sort of virus population over time. So, so, so that's not really the mutation rate uh, of the polymerase. It's kind of the, the, the rate at which the uh, new variants are taking hold in the population. Uh, and that also occurs at a, at a you know, significant rate. It's not as high as the, uh, as the actual mutation rate. Uh, but we're seeing the, the virus evolve over time. And, and it evolves fast enough that we can actually track uh, where different viruses, you know, originated. So did a particular, if somebody gets infected with a, a virus, they can, we can determine, did that come from, uh, from, you know, the China cohort or did it come from the, uh, the you know, European cohort? And then we can get much more fine grain than even that. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. So, okay. Um, so I guess it sounds like no one's really characterized what the, muta the mutated strains are doing so far, or the error, the errors from the strains. I mean, have they or no? Yeah, so people are looking very carefully at the characteristics of these strains. Once again, the biggest thing that we don't know is how these mutations uh, act in human populations. And then again, that's a thing that's knowable, uh, but really, you know, hasn't been studied. So, so again, you were talking about putting large quantities of money into this. Uh, in a, to a certain extent, uh, as much as possible, we should be getting the the uh, the sequence from uh, from every single individual, the the the, pro the predominant sequence from every individual who's infected, and then we can actually combine that together to see if there are trends in terms of uh, our 
are some of these actually more likely to cause, uh, you know, blood disorders or more likely to cause, uh, you know, very serious, uh, you know, respiratory disease. So we could actually start making correlations between uh, the particular sequence of the virus uh, and the and the outcomes. Uh, in addition, we it would be great to know actually a bit about the genetic makeup of the host, because it may turn out that certain features of the virus only show up in particular genetic backgrounds. So what else uh, you believe needs to be done to help, you know, get a handle on the viral parameters and so that society can function and know what to do from here? Okay, so so what our, our biggest goal right now is to basically control the virus. So if we think about, you know, how we would control the virus, uh, you can think about all the things that have been talked about in controlling the virus. One is the development of one or more highly effective vaccines. Another is the development of one or more highly effective uh, drugs, therapeutics. Uh, another would be the, 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 the hope that the virus um, will become milder during a different season or that the virus will evolve toward a milder state uh, another is, you know, people have talked about, you know, if we pray hard enough, like maybe the virus will go away. And the last one is that uh, behavioral interventions uh, are another way of making the virus go away. Of all of those, the only one for which we have data uh, that is effective in controlling the virus is, uh, is the behavioral interventions. And so right now, it's possible that we may have a vaccine in six months or a year or two years or five years, but we can't be sure. It's possible we may have some very effective therapeutics, you know, within, you know, by the end of the year or in two years or five years, but we don't know for sure. The only thing we know for sure is that behavioral interventions are capable of stopping this virus. So we need to sort of double down on those behavioral interventions what's getting there's lots of things that get in the way of those behavioral interventions they include uh the fact that you know they have huge economic impacts they have huge psychological impacts they have huge political impacts but the fact is that uh we need to have a long-term perspective and say if we don't double down and get rid of the virus now what you know, what is the long-term consequence of having to deal with this virus over the course of a year, two years, five years? What's the economic impact of having to deal with this virus? What's the psychological impact if we don't get rid of the virus? What is getting rid of the virus? What is controlling the virus mean in terms of numbers and in terms of uh, specifics? Well, ideally, it means we become New Zealand and we drive the infection rate to zero and they now have resumed life as they know it, aside from travel. Uh, so that's, that's really the goal. So it, the way that, that the first SARS virus was controlled was through behavioral interventions. There was never a vaccine. There was never a drug. Uh, and basically, it was controlled, and it was eliminated from the human population. So that's the ideal. Um, short of that, uh, we need to become, you know, uh, places like Italy and drive down the rate until it's low enough that we can now institute things such as contact tracing, where we're looking for the residual cases. We have so many cases in the United States that we can't even do contact tracing because the virus is everywhere. So what do you think is a, uh, a likely, you know, six months or one year into the future, you know, at least in the United States, let's say? I think on the track that we're on, 
um, things will be worse in six months. So I think that, for instance, if we look at the development of vaccines, a typical vaccine takes 10 to 15 years to develop. Drugs take a long period of time. And even after they're developed, that we still we have to look at the manufacturing pipeline. In the U.S., six months later, we don't have the pipeline for uh, adequate uh, N95 masks. We don't have the pipeline for adequate swabs, okay? So now we're talking about getting the pipeline to get, you know, the entire population of the world uh, effective vaccine. So not only do you have to develop the vaccine, you also have to manufacture it and distribute it. Uh, so I'm looking at a fairly long timeline. Uh, same thing with the drugs. Now, in terms of seasonality, it's worth looking at that too, because people have you know, spent a lot of time sort of saying, oh, the virus is going to burn itself out. Well, we've now seen it during every season of the year because it's been more than six months in the Northern Hemisphere. That covers half of the season. And it's been more than six months in the Southern Hemisphere and that covers the other half of the seasons. And there's no indication that seasonality is affecting this virus, at least so far. And furthermore, if it behaves like other respiratory viruses, it will get worse in the in, uh, fall and winter. And so that actually is not a good sign. If, it's gonna be, if it behaves like flu or like some of the other respiratory viruses, that may you know, bode poorly for, what, for our outbreak. So we- so what, what do you think they'll- uh... What do you think will happen when flu season returns? Do you think that, um, is there a possibility, in, you know, in having studied virology that, you know, uh, people that get flu, if they still have residual coronavirus in them, do you think that'll be a, you know, a pathogenic synergistic combination of both that'll make them both far worse for you? Or would, do you think there'll be any interaction there? Oh, I think that's an outstanding question. And the, what the answer to almost every question, you know, uh, I, I believe this is following uh, the, the inventor of, I'll, I'll take a little diversion here. The inventor of vaccines is a guy named Edward Jenner. He came up with a vaccine for smallpox. And his mentor was a guy named John Hunter. And in the late 1700s, he told Edward Jenner, if you want to know the answer, you have to do the experiment. And so the, the answer is, is that we need to either do the experiment or look at the data very carefully before we make those predictions. So, so yes, it's, it's reasonable to think that, uh, that things could get worse uh, during co-infections with both influenza and coronavirus, but we don't really know the answer very clearly. Again, this, this, this is revealing. In fact, we could know some of this because we've already seen coronavirus during a flu season, but we haven't really gotten the data. Yeah, and you said that things uh, you believe may be worse in six months. Worse in what way? In terms of uh, the death rate or just number of cases or, you know? All factors, like what factors specifically do you think will worse? Well, um, I, if, if you look at the, you know, there's some indication that, for instance, the death rate is going down. Uh, I think that's somewhat controversial. Uh, but, but there, you know, there, there's some data that's been coming out in the last week or two, the death rate is going down. But if you look at the number of deaths, it's going up. And it's, it's actually... Um, it's going up dramatically. And so in some places, it's as high as it's ever been. Uh, the, the hospital population, you know, in, in California of people with coronavirus and people in the ICU, it continues to rise. And so if that happens, you know, we're, we're, we may be looking at some of those things that, that were being considered as worst case scenarios, like in New York, um, those, some of those are coming to play in different parts of the, the, the country now. That could get worse. Hmm. Okay. 
Um, I, I think I think I'm I'm less I'm less uh, sanguine. I'm less you know interested in making bold predictions than in in saying that we need to prepare for some of these worst case scenarios. And you know basically the the alarms that have been that have been rung by public health officials since the very beginning of the pandemic um, have not been heated. Uh, and and so it, it, a lot of this stuff is not even new. It's just, it's just people aren't doing it. Like for instance, the need for a national plan of the sort you were talking about. So one of the, the editorials I wrote was the knee, a 10 point plan for creating a, uh, a Manhattan project to stop this virus. That's kind of what you were referring to. It hasn't happened. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Um, I don't know. I mean, uh, do you, well, I guess <laughs> I'm not sure. What yeah, you. I, I, I guess, you know, I, I know that you, you know, you can't be held to any prediction. No one can, but uh, do you see any turning of the tide here or do you, you know, again, what do you, I guess, what do you see as what would be a good prevention strategy from here? You know, with our exact conditions, if you were to suddenly run the show in terms of virus response, what would you do from here? Well, what I would do from here is I would start out, with I'd say uh, gamblers gamblers fallacy gamblers fallacy is we've already put the money on the table we've lost this much we can't stop gambling now okay so uh, I would say we need to start from scratch and say at this point in time what do we need to do to control this virus and the answer is we need to do something that looks a lot more like Italy so the question is if we double down for a month or so you know, and in the harshest way, and we can control this and, and sort of get to another place, we can, you know, then I think in the long run, the, the total amount of suffering uh, and, and death will be a lot less. So yes, that would be really painful. But I think those are the things that need to be done. You, you have to understand that, that if everybody buys in, we can stop this in one or two rounds of infection. So we can stop this in a matter of weeks if everybody buys in, okay? If everybody doesn't buy in, then those efforts may just turn out to be, you know, sort of uh, not that helpful, which is sort of what we did so far. They were somewhat helpful uh, in bringing, that. what they did was they stopped the rate of increase, but they never produced the proper decrease in the total number of cases. So, so there's a, you know, from an epidemiological standpoint, um, you know, people talk about the, you know, the, the transmissibility of the virus. So on average, if each infected person infects less than one other person, then the incidence of the virus will start to decline. And the faster that, the, the lower that number is. So if each person infects zero people, then the pandemic will stop in one round, okay? If they infect, you know, a small number of people, then it'll take several rounds, okay? So, so it really depends on how effective our interventions are. But what we've essentially done is brought that average transmission rate to around one. So it's, it, it's, it's sort of hanging out where it was before for a lot, in a lot of places in the U.S. And some places, they, it's still way above the, on the infection. Yeah, but at the same time, more and more people have been exposed to it. So we are also heading towards somewhat of a herd immunity, which will dampen the infect infectivity rate, if okay. there is such a thing long term. Okay, I don't, I don't, I, I think that, again, herd immunity is one of those sort of wishful thinking concepts, and I'll, I'll explain why. So herd immunity suggests that, you know, if you have enough people in, who have, have immunity to this virus, that they will protect the remaining people, and the probability of transmission will be less than one, and so they probably won't get infected, okay? 
So what, you know, what's wrong with that? Well, first of all, for measles, uh, herd immunity is at about 90% or more. So that means that you're going to have 90% of Americans. And so if you calculate the death rate from that, even if the death rate is, uh, you know, is, is 1% or something like that, you're talking about millions of Americans dead. Okay, so, so, so you don't want that. Okay, now what if it's less? People have estimated that maybe coronavirus might be 50 or 70% of the population. You're still talking about millions of people dead. We, we, and then furthermore, even if we got there, it wouldn't produce herd immunity. Here's why. Herd immunity assumes that everybody is equally distributed throughout the population. But if, if you have 95% effect, uh, immune and the last 5% live together, for instance, low, let's say like in a nursing home or maybe in a prison, then it just takes one case in there. And basically you will put the people uh, the remaining people at risk. So if the people at high risk are protected, they're not really protected because unless the, you know, unless there's zero transmission in the general population, you haven't produced any herd immunity. So, so the assumptions associated with herd immunity don't actually equal the reality of who's getting infected. I see. So well, very good, Robert. We're, we're just about out of time. What's the best way for people to end <laughs> your work and to oh, follow well, up from here? Um, well, I have a fairly extensive web presence. Uh, you can also um, uh, get a hold of me at my uh, at my email, which is chickenpox at gmail.com. Yeah, Robert, thanks for coming. Uh, I appreciate it. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.